Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to THX what is THX's. Let, I, listen, this is the last Sunday before THX. I have to start by talking about THX, okay? Then we'll get to the message. THX, if you are not familiar, you keep hearing these three letters and you're like, what are these crazy people talking about? That is what we call our Thanksgiving outreach, uh, if, if you want to kind of boil it down to the most basic form. What we do is we cook a full Thanksgiving meal, turkey, sides, all of that stuff. We have gifts for the kids uh, in this family. We prepare all of that, and on Thursday morning, Thanksgiving morning, we together as a church sacrifice uh, some of our morning Thanksgiving time uh, when we might be sleeping in or we might be hanging out with family. We sacrifice some of that time to deliver that cooked meal and gifts to a family uh, that is in need of those things. And, and the first year we did this for 25 families. If you've ever cooked a single Thanksgiving turkey, you know how difficult that is. Now do that 25 times, okay? That's, that's insane. We shouldn't have done it, but we did it, and somehow we barely got through. The following year we doubled that, and then we've continued to grow year by year. This year we're cooking 330 turkeys and meals and wrapping gifts for 330 families and delivering all over Salem and in Silverton. Now that we have planted a church in Silverton, uh, there will be, I think, 30 or 40 families in Silverton, the rest here in Salem. It is a giant undertaking, and it is so much fun. If you have not been involved in THX before, I just got to tell you, you got to get involved. It is, it is so much fun. Yes, it's hard work, but it's hard work for the glory of God. Uh, it's a great way to get to know some other people. If you're brand new to our church, you don't know anybody, I guarantee if you come and serve at THX, you will know some people by the end. I have made good friends peeling potatoes in prior years, okay? We actually aren't even peeling potatoes this year, so you have no excuse. Uh, here's what we need, okay? 330 families is what I, I mentioned. That's the total number we're shooting for. Here's what's exciting. We, we weren't, our food costs have gone up like crazy, right? This is just the, the realities of this year. Uh, things have gotten a lot more expensive. And so our costs and, and budget is, is higher than it's ever been. And we're like, dude, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it's going to come in. And, and like a few weeks ago, like two weeks ago, we're like, I don't know if it's going to come in. But the Lord has always provided. And so we just trusted in that and leaned into that. We now only have 36 families left to, to sponsor. Isn't that incredible? We've, we've paid for almost 300 already. We've got 36 more to go. It's about $130, $140 per family. If, if you've not given yet to THX or if you can help with part of that, please do. THXSalem.com is where you can go. You can also go to the Connect Center out there. Uh, this is the last week. Please don't put it off another week. Somebody's got to pay for these turkeys, okay? 36 families left to go. We don't want to leave them out, so please help with that. Uh, next, we need help cooking said turkeys. Uh, a, lot, a lot of help. Uh, we, we need people, we're cooking turkeys Monday and Tuesday. Uh, I, I signed up to help on Monday. Uh, you know, some of you know me fairly well. I am not a morning person at all. Uh, and they're like, we need some help cooking turkeys Monday. I said, I'm in, I'm there. Uh, what time do you need me to be there? I'm thinking 10, maybe 9, 6 a.m. Somebody is cooking turkeys at 6 a.m. And like an idiot, I did not ask the time before I signed up. So just be fair warned. Okay, I think there's multiple shifts. I should have gone for the afternoon shift. But tomorrow morning, I will be there cooking turkeys. Please come join me. Turkeys tomorrow and Tuesday, I think we, we actually need most 
Uh, mostly we need people on Tuesday. So if you're available, if you can take the day off work, if you're not working for some reason, Tuesday we're cooking turkeys. Wednesday there's like a, a thousand things to do. Uh, all, all manner of things. I don't know, wrapping gift boxes and packing things and sorting, organizing a lot of administrative tasks, uh, you know, getting the right family's information on the right boxes, all this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of help. Wednesday we need virtually all day. So the best way to, to sign up, again, thxsalem.com. And the last thing, and this is for everyone, Thursday morning is the delivery time. Thursday morning, we meet here at the church at nine o'clock, and then we start taking food out to people. And, and in every year past, we've been done right at or, or right around noon, okay? So it's, it's not, we're not asking you to give your whole Thanksgiving day. You can be done by noon and head home and continue with family stuff. But we are asking that everybody, everybody that, that is in town that can possibly be here Thursday morning, it is the most exciting thing. You want to be here for that. So 9 o'clock Thursday, right here in the church. Those that are in Silverton are going to be coming and joining us as well. They'll be taking the meals back out to Silverton, and then we have deliveries all over Salem. So I, I, I was told we need at least 50 more drivers uh, or maybe more. Uh, we're, we're counting on the church to show up for that. And, and the community, if you know other people, if your families you know, planning on coming over, uh, you know, to your place for Thanksgiving, we'll have them meet you here. <laughs> they can deliver a couple turkeys and then go do your thing. So anyway, that's it. I'll stop talking about THX, but I just want to give you the update. There's a lot to celebrate there. There's a lot of work uh, that has already started. There's more work going on today uh, and, and a whole bunch of work coming this week. So I just want to invite all of you to be a part of that. Uh, this is kind of the one big massive outreach thing we do together as a church, and I wouldn't want you to miss it. Now, as we transition into our passage, it's pretty straightforward, right? Uh, it is. O often I feel like I'm coming up in front of you to teach, and I, and I feel like, I don't always preface this uh, with this, uh, but I feel like saying, boy, this is a really complicated passage. Let's try to break it down here in 30 or 40 minutes. Uh, this is not one of those. The, the joke this week with, with some of the other teaching elders was, like, should I just stand up, say, pay your taxes, and then call the band up? Like, <laughs> don't get your hopes up, okay? Uh, I can even make that long-winded. Uh, like, it's pretty straightforward. It's, it, 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 they're, they're trying to trap Jesus here. They ask him this question, and, uh, and Jesus gives this answer. Before we really kind of pull this apart, um, I want to give some historical context to what's really going on, and then, and then we'll look at three questions that the, that the passage raises, okay? Some of the historical context. So in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story, and we get, as you do with multiple people telling the same story, you get a slightly different viewpoint, right? A slightly different angle and different details depending on who's telling it. They work together uh, to, to supplement one another to really get a whole view of what was going on here. One of the things that is pointed out in, uh, in Matthew and Mark is that we have the Pharisees and the Herodians working together. These are two people groups who are not friendly. They are at odds virtually all of the time. Uh, you have the, the Herodians, those uh, loyal to Herod, and you have the Pharisees, which feel oppressed by Herod uh, and, and feel that their authority is God, no man. And, and so there's this conflict, this debate, this uh, warring of a sense between these two groups, and yet here we see them working together. What's going on? Well, you know, as the old uh, adage goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? They have a common enemy in Jesus, and so we see two unlikely groups working together 
both of them want Jesus gone. The Pharisees want Jesus gone because he's challenging their religious authority. That's the power they have, and they don't want to let go of that. So they want Jesus gone because he's challenging the, the, the established uh, religious powers, which challenges their very position. And the Herodians want Jesus gone because he's challenging the, the political uh, system. He's challenging, uh, as he talks all about the kingdom of God, uh, as he is called king of the Jews, uh, as he talks about his kingdom, this is at odds with Herod's kingdom. He doesn't want anyone rising up. And ultimately, Herod is, is a governor under Roman rule, right? He's put in place to rule in this local area, but, but Caesar has ultimate rule and authority. And the only reason Herod has rule and authority and power and wealth is because and authority and power and Rome says so. Now, if there are uprisings, if there are rebellions, if there are revolts in his uh, in his Guess what happens to Herod? His family's out. Someone else will be put in, right? Rome will step in. They will squash whatever revolt pops up, and they will replace the local leadership. And so if Jesus is rising a revolt, this is very threatening to Herod and those loyal to him. And so for those two reasons, these groups that normally would have nothing to do with each other are coming together and plotting and planning to get Jesus killed or discredited or removed in some way, any way they possibly can. What's being talked about here now as we move on, uh, as they say, should we pay this tax? It's not just a general question about a tax. Uh, This tax paid by a denarius, paid by this coin, is specific. It's it's what they called a head tax. There were taxes on goods, you know, effectively sales taxes, income taxes. Uh, There were taxes on your own uh, crops that you grow. There were taxes on lots of things, but they were kind of less offensive, although actually a much bigger tax. All, all these other taxes were far more expensive, but it was a tax on using Caesar's system of trade and roads and, and uh, the, the financial system and all of this. And so it made sense that we are getting something in exchange for uh, the money we pay in these taxes uh, that wasn't as offensive. But the head tax was to be paid by every man and woman and children from essentially the age 12 and up. It's to be paid by all of them with a single denarius, a single coin, not a ton of money. But it's just for the privilege of being ruled by Caesar. Just to be in his kingdom, which he brought by force and took over your land, for that privilege, you owe him a denarius. It was an offensive tax. There was nothing that it kind of represented uh, other than submission to Rome, which the Jews in particular, the Pharisees and, and the Jewish people, found great offense at this tax, this head tax, because they don't see themselves as submitting to Rome. They see themselves as submitting only to God. God is their highest authority, not Caesar. And so to pay Caesar this tax was particularly offensive to Jewish people. And your options were not pay the tax and be imprisoned or maybe killed or pay the tax and go on living your life. And so most, with the exception of of the, the, the most radical, most people just paid this tax 
but they would have grumbled and complained uh, and quietly, maybe behind closed doors, talked about how unjust uh, this tax, this head tax was. So that's the tax specifically being asked about here when they say, is it lawful to pay this tax? Is it lawful, uh, in a sense they're asking, is it lawful to uh, you know, agree that Caesar is, is uh, sovereign over us? That's the, the question going on there. A little more historical context. Um, the, this tax was put in place, as far as I could find in, in my study, about 25 years prior to this event that we're reading about right now. About 25 years prior, Jesus would have been a little boy. Uh, there was a man named Judas of Galilee who uh, raised up a revolt against Rome and specifically against this tax. Uh, which, by the way, I just, like, Judas, not a great name in the Bible, okay? Just <laughs> throwing that out there. Uh, Judas of Galilee uh, told people, refuse to pay this head tax. As Jews, we should not be paying this tax. He uh, talked a lot about the kingdom of God. He talked a lot about how God was their king, not Caesar. He got armed, uh, an armed mob together with him, and they went in and cleansed the temple. Does this sound familiar? He went in and cleansed the temple and he threw out all foreigners. All the Romans, all the foreigners, anyone who was not Jewish got thrown out of the temple during this revolt. Ultimately, he was overpowered, killed, and his revolt came to an end. So that is in recent history. It's in recent memory. It was an event that would have happened in Jesus' childhood. And so this, was, this would be familiar to people. Jesus has talked a lot about the kingdom of God, right? He's talked a lot about the kingdom of God, and he's talked uh, a lot about, uh, well, he, he, more than talked about, he went and cleansed the temple, right? An, an interesting difference, though, uh, if you remember from that message, uh, Jesus cleanses the, the court of the Gentiles to make room for foreigners. Judas of Galilee threw the foreigners out. Jesus was making room for foreigners. Just an interesting difference, I, I thought. Uh, but he had cleansed the temple. He talked about the kingdom of God. And now they want to know, should we or should we not pay the head tax? Is it lawful to pay the head tax? Jesus, are you a revolutionary or are you not? That's what they're trying to get at. And, and this this creates this dilemma. Uh, it creates this dilemma, which uh, Jesus has done to the Pharisees many, many times. Uh, and in fact, just recently, they came to him with a question, and he said, I'll answer your question if you tell me, was John the Baptist from heaven or not? Where did he come from? Right? And if you remember, they couldn't answer that question, because if they said from heaven, then Jesus would reply, then why didn't you listen to him, and why don't you follow me? because John the Baptist said to follow me, right? And so they couldn't say from heaven, but they couldn't say from man or from some other place because the crowds believed John the Baptist was sent by God, that he was a true prophet. And so if they said that he's not from heaven, if, he, if he's not sent by God, if he's not a true messenger of God, the people would kill them, throw them out, stop listening, stop following. They would lose their control. And so Jesus had put the Pharisees in a position where they couldn't answer the question. And it seems they're trying to take a page out of Jesus' book, and now they're trying to pose a question that he can't answer. It's a yes or no question. Pay the tax or not. Is it lawful to pay the tax or not? 
what do we do here, Jesus? Is it a yes or a no? And, and this dilemma is if he says, no, don't pay the tax. We are, we are not going to do that. Then, then he will be marked as a revolutionary and the authorities, the Roman authorities, will come in and stomp him out. Right? So, so to say, no, don't pay the tax is certain death for Jesus. And so they say, well, he, he's probably not going to say that. If he does, we've got him. But if he says, yes, pay the tax, then all that talk of this other kingdom, all that talk of God's justice and mercy coming to the lowly and the down and out, all of that is discredited. To, to say yes, just bow to the, the Roman oppression, bow to the foreign authorities, just be a good, tax-paying, law-abiding citizen would devalue everything he's talked about and he'll lose the people. So no matter how he answers the question, he either loses the people or he loses his life. That's what they think is going to happen. That's the position that they think they've put him in. Are you raising revolution or are these just empty words? I want to ask three questions of the passage. Just briefly here. Number one, what is Caesar's? He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So what is belonging to Caesar? I think that's relevant to know. Number two, what is God's? If we're to give to God what is his, then what does belong to God? And the third question we'll get to here in, in a minute. What is Caesar's? Well, what bears his image? What bears the image of Caesar? Well, the coin does, right? The coin actually has a, a picture of Caesar and an inscription with his name on it. It bears his image, and it belongs to him. In fact, uh, ancient coins were believed to still belong to the one who minted them. And so Caesar would mint these coins out of his own uh, silver reserves. They were a silver coin. They'd be minted out of his own silver reserves. They could be used to buy, sell, trade, do commerce in his uh, kingdom in his empire, but ultimately they belong to him. They're believed to be the, the property of the one whose inscription and image they bore. And so what is Caesar's? Well, well the, the money, that seems fairly easy. When Jesus says, give to Caesar, what is Caesar's? It's got his picture on it, right? As, as kids, you ever <laughs> argue like, this is my seat. And, and the other kid would say, does it have your name on it? Like, yeah, it has his name on it, right? Pretty simple. Uh, not a big deal. But what else does Caesar want? He wants total allegiance, total obedience, submission to his system of injustice and oppression. And Jesus is saying, this is not something we can give. Jesus changes the verb. When they say, should we give, the, the verb that, that the Pharisees use or, or are to give or to hand over. Right? Is it lawful to give this tax to Caesar? And Jesus replies with a verb that, that says to repay or return. Right? It's to give back versus to give. Jesus is saying you can, you can give back to Caesar that which is his. The money was minted out of his silver stash. Give it back to him. That's no big deal. Who cares? Give it back to him. But total allegiance, submission to the system of oppression, injustice, 
That, that was never his to begin with, right? Our allegiance was never his. It's not something to give back to him. So when he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, he's essentially putting a stop in there. There are limits to what belongs to Caesar. Caesar would not have it that way. Caesar would have no limits to what is his. But as people, we cannot agree with that. We cannot do that. Uh, Tim Keller has this in response uh, to, to this very idea. Uh, he says, what does a tyrant deserve? Okay, maybe he deserves his money back, but doesn't he deserve some resistance as well? What Jesus Christ is saying is, you may give Caesar some of what he wants, which is his money, but you cannot give Caesar ultimately what he wants, which is to completely accept his system, his system of coercion, his system of injustice, his system of exclusion. He wants ultimate allegiance that we cannot give him. Jesus is not going to incite a revolution through tax code. Praise the Lord. Oh my goodness, how lame would that be? He's not going to incite revolution through, through a change in tax code. But he's not going to bow down and follow blindly anything that Caesar says and wants him to do. There are limits to, to this human power. What Jesus is doing, he, he's not after the empire of Rome. Human revolutions have always been about power. We want this group out because they are abusing power. And we want this group in because we feel that they would have a more appropriate use of power, which often in reality means this group has power and favors these people. And we want this group in who has power and will favor these people. Once this group comes into force, these people will be suppressed and these people raised up or vice versa. Right? It's always about this power and the shifting of power. That's what a human revolution is all about. But Jesus is not after the Roman throne. He's not after the Roman Empire. He's doing something so much bigger than that. That's thinking far too small. And the Pharisees and the Herodians and all of those who oppose Jesus, they don't even have the, the lens to see what Jesus is doing. They, they don't even have... Uh, a frame of mind to, to understand what he's after because he's after something so much more than a human empire. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And then give to God what is God's. And, and the statement of giving to Caesar what is Caesar's, Jesus immediately puts in check, not only by limiting that this only that which is Caesar's, can we give back to him? But also by following it up with this uh, higher statement, give to God what is God's. So that's my second question. What is God's? Well, if we go to Psalm chapter 50, verse 10, this might be a helpful explanation. Psalm chapter 50, verse 10, it says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And down in verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God is, is speaking there about how absurd it is that, that 
as we bring sacrifice to, sacrifices to God, it's as if it's something he needs. It's already his. What he's getting at there is, is the heart that all of the cattle on a thousand hills are God's, and so are the hills, right? Everything is God's. Everything on earth, he made it. It's all his. So when we say give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's, the second statement overshadows the first. Deuteronomy 10.14 takes it a bit further. Deuteronomy 10.14 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. So all of the earth belongs to God and everything that's in it, all of heaven and the heaven of heavens. We're talking the sky, the space, everything belongs to God. He made all of it. It all belongs to him. So is it Caesar himself God's? Caesar himself is a created man who by the grace of God was allowed even to have a breath. Even Caesar belongs to to God. He created him. And in fact, when we give from our wallet and transfer it to Caesar's wallet, isn't it just transferring from one account in God's name to another account in God's name? How, how insignificant then is it that we pay this tax to Caesar? It's all mine, God says. It's all mine, including you and including him and everything. So the question I asked with, with Caesar is, is what bears his image. Well, uh, I, I would ask the same question here when we're, when we're reviewing what is God's. We can ask that question, what bears his image? The coin bears the image of Caesar and the inscription with his name on it. What bears the image of God? Well, the whole person does. Genesis one uh, twenty seven. I don't think I actually bookmark that one. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We bear God's image. Not a silly little silver coin, but us. Every one of us, we are made in God's image and likeness. We have worth and value because of that imprint. That silver coin has worth and value in that time because it bears the image of Caesar and an inscription, it is worth a day's wages for a common laborer. That's what the denarius is worth because it carries that inscription and that image. We have worth and value, which is far in excess of what a denarius is. We have worth and value because we carry God's image and his likeness. God assigns value to us. Give to God what is God's, what bears his image. Well, our whole selves. God is after our whole selves. He's after everything. God is looking for us to fully submit to him, to fully surrender to him because we bear his image. Why wouldn't we? My third question is, why doesn't Jesus have a coin? 
Did anyone catch this? I missed this the first couple of times. But when he goes to give this object lesson about paying this tax, Jesus does not pull a coin out of his own pocket. He doesn't have a coin. He has to ask for one. Isn't that interesting? I thought it was kind of funny. Here we have the king of kings, God in the flesh, and he doesn't have a denarius. In, in one of the commentaries I read, they compared it to a quarter. They called Jesus the king without a quarter. Why doesn't he have a simple denarius? Everyone would have one. This is such a small amount of money. Jesus doesn't have it. Why doesn't Jesus have a coin? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, it does carry the image of a blasphemous man, right? The inscription on the coin says, Tiberius, king, son of God Augustus, high priest. Did you catch that? It makes three claims. I'm king, I'm the son of God, and I'm high priest. Three titles that do not belong to Caesar. It has three blasphemous claims on it. On a tiny little coin, how absurd is this? So it might be that Jesus doesn't have one of these coins because it's just, I mean, it just like, it goes against everything that he is. It, it, it has three titles that belong to Jesus, king, son of God, and high priest. Those are, those are Jesus titles, not Caesar. So that might be a reason that he doesn't have this coin. But I, I think there's something much bigger going on. The, the real reason Jesus doesn't have a coin is because in Jesus' kingdom, money doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter at all. A, a denarius has nothing to do with his kingdom. Uh, I, I have here, this is going to sound like a big deal, 100,000 uh, Vietnamese dong. That's the, the currency of, of Vietnam. That's 100,000. It's worth nothing. Nothing. I cannot take this to the bank and exchange it for anything. It's worth nothing. It's not a currency recognized by the rest of the world. If I wanted to exchange this for anything, I would actually have to travel to Vietnam and, and, and transfer this into another currency and then get back on a plane and go home with my 10 cents or whatever it is. Like, it's not worth it. It's worth nothing. I think this is kind of how Jesus views a denarius. It's worth zero. I, imagine a situation where you go into a, 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 an airport in Vietnam and you're leaving and you've got a bunch of this currency, which you know in the place where you're going has no value. It's worth nothing. You can exchange it for nothing. And imagine at the airport there's a cover charge and they say pay 100,000 Vietnamese dong in order to enter the airport. Okay. So what? Right? This is Jesus' view of the denarius. It matters for nothing. It's so insignificant to his kingdom. It, it, it has zero value. Right? Zero value. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh, how, how little does it matter? Well, let me ask you this. Where is Caesar today? Dead. Right? Where are his precious coins bearing his image? On eBay. Literally, I looked it up. You can buy a denarius with this inscription and his image on eBay. It's not worth anything. It's, it's absurd that, that 
you know, they, they assign this value, and, and we constantly do this. Money has, is one of those things, Jesus talks about money a ton, because it's one of the things that has the power to capture our hearts. Money is one of the things that will lead us away from God. The, the love of money will, will derail a Christian faster, I think, than just about anything else. Probably sex and money, those are the two things that will derail a Christian faster than anything else. So Jesus talks about it a lot, and he tries to put in perspective how little it matters. You see, in Jesus' kingdom, it's people that matter, not money. It's justice and mercy. These passages where, where, where God talks about the sacrifices and how he owns everything, what, what God is getting at is, like, you're, you're not caring for the widow or the orphan. You're oppressing the poor, and then you come in and give me a sacrifice in the temple as if I was hungry? I don't need your sacrifice because I'm hungry. I need your heart. The sacrifice is supposed to represent where your heart is at. That's what God is really after. He's after the whole person. He's after all of us. Give to God what is God's. That's our whole selves. It's everything. It's everything we own, everything we touch. It's all God's. It's the people that matter, the souls that matter. As Christians, we should be radically generous. We should be radically generous as a people. And this is something that is hard for me because I too have a love of money. And it's wicked and it's sinful and I have to battle it constantly. And, and I've said this before, I'm gonna keep saying it, the best way to battle that, that wicked love of money is to give it away. Give some of it away, at least with those dollars you can say, you have no hold on me, right? When I give some money away, that money has no hold on me. I just gave it away freely. Christians should be radically generous, and I think often we are. Radically generous because money matters so little. Like, can, can, can we raise $45,000 to feed families on Thanksgiving? Why has that never been a big deal? Because money matters so little to Jesus. Like, oh, you need some money to feed people? Cool. That's the easy part. Way harder is not burning turkeys. That is so much harder, right? I don't know why, but it is. Flames and hell, I don't know. But, like, that's hard. But the money is easy. Like, God owns all of it. It's all his. That's not a big deal. So Christians, we should follow in that view, and we should be radically generous with the things we do. It shows that our heart is not consumed by this love of money, and it shows that, that we are, are rightly following Jesus. And I, and I need to be crystal clear, generosity is not something that buys your way into heaven. Don't you dare think it, not for a minute. Don't you dare think that. If you are not generous, but, but you have received Jesus' death on the cross in your place, you are 100% saved. And if you are radically generous, but you have not received Jesus' death on the cross in your place, you are not saved at all. Generosity does not buy our position with God. That might work with man. It doesn't work with God because money matters how much? Not at all. Not at all, right? Generosity is a sign of our heart being aligned with God. Right, a Christian, someone who truly follows Jesus, who's been, who's been radically changed by the cross, should be generous 
That, that's just naturally going to come out. You're going to view money as less important. You're going to view God and, and the people that he made as more important. And generosity is going to come. It's a sign of our salvation, but it is not a prerequisite. And that has to be understood. We have to be so careful that we don't get those mixed up or we are in dangerous territory. But generosity should flow. Generosity should flow from Christians. Last, uh, last verse here, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 7.23, Paul tells us that we were bought with a price. My wife, I, I, was, I was like, how does this message tie to the cross? Last night I was like, man, I'm really struggling with this. And she said, well, you were bought with a price. Like, that seems like a natural one. You're talking about money. I'm like, no, silly wife. You don't know. <laughs> anyway, it just, we were doing, we were worshiping, and this hit me. This is handwritten in my notes because this didn't even occur to me. I couldn't figure out how it fit until we're worshiping over here. And I was like, oh, yeah, it does fit. She's onto something. <laughs> Listen, we were bought with a price. What's the price that Jesus paid to buy us? It's his blood, right? We're going we're gonna to take communion here in a second. We're going to celebrate and remember his blood, which purchased us out of the bondage we were in to sin. Jesus bought us with a price. That price is his blood. What's the currency in heaven? It's not money. Money doesn't matter. It's Jesus' blood. By receiving Jesus' blood, we go from poverty to wealth. By receiving that currency, we go from poverty to wealth. Jesus' blood is what he buys or, or what he pays with. And, and what does he mint with that? Caesar had silver and he minted coins. What does Jesus mint with his blood? What does he make? What does he imprint with his image? What's well, believers? It's those who would place their faith in Jesus, those who would follow him, that is what he meant with his blood. Would you receive that if you have not already? And would you walk in that if you are a Christian? I want to invite the uh, ushers forward. We're going we're gonna to go to a time of communion. Uh, if you want to get up out of your seats when they get in place, um, find uh, a, a communion. There'll be a, a cup with uh, juice and a cup with a cracker. It represents Jesus' body and his blood. Why don't we go ahead and stand up and do that now. When you get the elements, go ahead and go back to your seats. We'll take these together in just a moment. Jesus told his followers on the night before he was crucified, when they gather to do this together, to, to take the bread and break it, to share it, and remember his body that was broken, broken for our sin. Let's take his body now together. And the wine he passed 
He said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you. Let's remember that now.